All righty. Good morning, Solano. How we doing? Good. Glad to hear that. I just first and foremost want to thank Denise in the crowd for helping me get here this morning via Lyft. Bart is having some uh, track maintenance uh, situations going on between Arenda and Rockridge Station. So I'm glad that I was able to work things out with Denise to help get me here in a timely fashion so I can read such a powerful word with you guys this morning. Um, so with that being said, if you guys can turn uh, your Bibles or pull out your phones to John chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. <clears throat> when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one place from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Calapas, and Mary Madeline. When Jesus saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that, the hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of God. All right, pray with me. Lord, uh, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Thank you that we are not alone, but we're here together and we're here with you. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to move in our midst, to take these words and uh, make them come alive in our circumstances, in our community, in our our own particular uh, challenges, uh, our doubts, our struggles, Lord, would you help these words uh, to come alive to us and to have their healing and refining impact uh, on us. So we give ourselves to you, we submit ourselves to you this morning, knowing that uh, when the church is gathered, you are present with us, gathered in the name of Jesus, you are present with us, and you are moving. This isn't something that we're just doing um, to, to follow through uh, a, a tradition, but actually this is real life. You are living. You rose from the dead, and you are at work right now, and we have the hope that things, the, the way things are doesn't have to be the way that they stay because you are on the throne, and you are working, and you're moving, and you love us, and you're powerful. So would you move in our midst this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I wanted to begin this morning just by giving some thanksgiving, some glory to God for uh, Easter. Uh, I think that's probably appropriate. Uh, the sense of glory on Easter Sunday was just so 
palpable as we worshiped and gathered together. I mean, going back actually even to Good Friday, uh, we had a sweet time of worship here in Good Friday. Had somebody email me afterwards just saying how they've been carrying something for a long time and were able to repent of it uh, on that Good Friday service. And then afterwards had just been experiencing a tremendous sense of freedom and relief. So maybe some others of you have, have felt that as well. So that was really special. And then the sunrise service, seven o'clock on top of Albany Hill. Uh, first of all, the cross was still there. We didn't know if the city was going to be tearing down the cross before the sunrise service on Easter, but it was still there. So that was great. And the hill didn't slide away because of the rains and the mud. So that was good. And we probably had a crowd as large as I've ever seen um, there gathered uh, to worship the Lord as the sun came up. And G was our host. And just as she began, uh, I was sort of standing behind her. She began to introduce and welcome everybody. The sun came up over the hill and everybody's face just sort of lit up. Uh, right at the moment as we began the service. So it was a really special time. And then, like I say, as we gathered here for our two services, our main services, it was sort of this palpable sense of, of God's glory. Uh, the worship team with the choir was so amazing. And the kids coming down the aisle and celebrating and all the joy that was there. We had um, visitors who were part of the service who, you know, made various kinds of comments like, this is the greatest service I've ever seen or... Um, you know, uh, I couldn't believe the diversity of this community. It really blessed me to see that. Um, we had a couple of people express interest in wanting to know more about Jesus Christ. So praise God for that. Uh, even online, God was moving. I had somebody text me right after the first service and say, wow, I haven't, I haven't sensed a kind of closeness to Jesus Christ in a very, very long time like I did this morning uh, through the live stream. Uh, and somebody else saying, uh, you know, family members were with them that hadn't been to church forever because of the live stream they were able to be with them. So that was really special. So I just want to keep giving God the glory for uh, what he's done. Yeah. Um, and I'm done yet. Uh, <laughs> we're, we were able to pray with people uh, at the end of service. I had several uh, opportunities to pray for people in some really deep and specific ways. God was moving in their lives. And then we were able to go downstairs and Denise and Rena again, uh, you know, just put this incredible spread that just reflected the glory of God uh, and the resurrection, you know, in food, which I believe is possible. And there's my alarm going off at 938 because it's a reminder of Matthew 9.38, uh, to Lord would raise workers for the harvest. So I'm going to keep mine going, by the way. So if your uh, uh, announcement or your reminder is going at 9.38, let it keep rolling for a little while and remind you uh, to pray the Lord would raise up workers for the harvest. Um, so anyway, those are the things I want to give uh, glory to God for uh, during, uh, the, the, during our Easter time. It was just such a special special weekend. And so I'm so grateful for all of you who chipped in, for all of you invited friends. Uh, it was fun to meet some of your friends that you invited and just get to talk with them. And so um, just praise God for that. And, and you know what? Actually, that can be the norm, right? Easter doesn't have to just be at Easter time because we celebrate the risen Jesus every Sunday. And so we can keep doing that. And, and let me just say something about how that happens. 
Um, I really do think there is a connection between, you know, Good Friday and the, the, the posture of repentance that we together embodied and the coming of the Holy Spirit to move in our midst and to point us towards God and the resurrection. And that's actually the rhythm of life. We continue through life to repent of sin and to experience the ongoing infilling of the Holy Spirit who empowers us and enables us. I didn't even mention Aaron's testimony, which was so amazing. Thank you, Aaron. Um, and the on, the, just the, the, the infilling of the Spirit uh, as a community, as we gather together. I mean, this is the picture that I'm, I'm more and more leaning into for us as a church, that Sunday should really be a time of rest and joy and fellowship as we're together, to be filled and encouraged. So we, we come together for that, and then we go out, you know, on mission in the, wor- in the world, Matthew 9, 38, um, to be God's hands and feet, to be outposts of the presence of God wherever we are uh, in the world. So anyway, I'm going on and on and on, uh, but I'm excited about uh, these truths, and I want to encourage us as a, as a family to keep living into this, right? Let's be people of repentance, quick to repent and to, be, to, be, to make space for the Holy Spirit. You know, there's been revivals uh, around the country, especially, you know, the one uh, recently that you've probably been hearing about in the news. And it doesn't have to just be in places like that. It can be in places like this as well. And it always starts with prayer and repentance. So let me just invite us to, to that in an ongoing way, all right? Easter every Sunday. Okay, all right, good. Uh, all right, so our text today is uh, about community, and uh, this is the final Sunday in our Easter mini-series, which we're calling Pilgrims to Paradise, and uh, my thought is it would be nice for us, you know, for visitors who are with us in person or online to have a kind of a, a connection point that follows through from Easter, uh, and, and it was almost like, you know, at Easter we, we sort of connected with God in a vertical way, and then the passage for today is going to connect us in a horizontal way. So we have that vertical relationship with the Lord and the horizontal relationship with the community of faith. And I just want to say... Um, just to underscore again that Alpha is coming up this Thursday and uh, it is a great opportunity for you or for friends that you have who might be curious about the things of God to have a space where they can explore without judgment and ask real questions while they're also being presented sort of the basic message of Christianity. I really encourage you to pray about, like right now, just pray, Lord, is there, some, is there somebody you're putting on my heart that you are calling me to invite and to bring to Alpha. Or maybe if that's you this morning, maybe you want to come to Alpha on Thursday night. You can get all the information in the QR code. But this is a a really important follow-up from our Easter uh, time and from the the mission uh, uh, focus that we've been on. So uh, shout out to that. so that's way, those are ways that we're sign of experiencing some continuity. Um, we want the vertical relationship with God and the hor- horizontal relationship with each other to continue to grow and deepen as the Lord moves uh, in our midst. Now, in this series, uh, we're going through the, what's called the seven last words of Jesus on the cross, or the seven last words of Christ. And we haven't actually put those up, so I thought it would be fun to just take a moment this morning uh, and take a look at, at 
at the last words of Christ in order so you could see them. What we're doing is this year we're doing three. So today will be the last day. Um, it will be the third one that we're going to do. And then next Easter, uh, Lord willing, we'll do the other four as we make our way towards Easter. So over these two Easter's, you're going to get all seven last words of Christ. These are the things that Jesus said on the cross, right, as he was uh, moving towards his final ultimate death. Then, of course, we know resurrection. So uh, the first one we looked at was uh, from Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, and then on Easter Sunday, we looked at Luke 23, 43, which says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is what he said to the criminal who was hanging next to him. Uh, today we're going to do the third one, which I'll get to, and uh, we already had Devon read for us. Uh, the fourth one is this, uh, John nineteen twenty. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. So we'll begin with that one next Easter. And then the fifth one, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from Matthew 27, 46. Uh, Then uh, the sixth one is when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John uh, 19.30, and then finally, we'll end with this one next Easter, uh, Luke 23.46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So this is, those are the seven last words of Christ. You can, something for you to know about, it's, it's just an interesting, down through the history of, of the church, there has been a tradition of studying those seven last words uh, around the time of Easter. And so that's what we're doing these two Easter's. Today we're going to look at John 19, uh, specifically 26 through 27, but I had Devon read 23 through 27 because there are two contrasting scenes here uh, that I wanted you to be uh, able to see uh, so that the, the, the point of what is being shown to us at the very end of this passage can really stand out in, in relief to, the, to the, the first scene. So the first scene is that scene of the soldiers, and then the second scene is Jesus on the cross speaking to his disciple and his mother and uniting them together in community. And this is, this is what we're going to look at to think about how we can work on that horizontal relationship together. We can become community in the way that God has intended for us to be community. So let's dive in. Let's talk about the first scene, which is the scene of these soldiers. You know, Jesus has been stripped. He's hanging there on the cross. Um, His garments have been removed. Any last vestige of glory has been taken away from him. And, you know, his clothing is in the hands of the soldiers, and they're casting lots for it. And we can make a couple of observations about what's happening in this first scene with the soldiers. Um, I'm entitling this scene, The Ruthless World. Um, Number one, the first observation is there's a remarkably um, specific fulfillment of Scripture here in this text. And you saw that it was actually called out uh, in the text itself. Psalm 22, written hundreds of years before these events, uh, is a detailed prophecy of this moment. In fact, um, you know, when, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22. So he, he's clearly aware of Psalm 22 and it being fulfilled while he's hanging there on the cross. 
But it's not just that quote from Psalm 22. There are a number of things that happen in Psalm 22 that are being fulfilled. Jesus is mocked. It says that you know, the Holy One will be mocked, will be taunted, uh, that there will actually even be a piercing. And so after this moment, Jesus will be pierced by the soldiers. Um, and it describes even this incredible detail of them casting lots to, to, for his clothing. And so it's not for nothing when you look at that and the specificity of the prophecy and the way that it's fulfilled in the life of Jesus. It's not for nothing that many people in looking at the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled have felt that that is one of the most compelling reasons to believe in Jesus Christ. When you see these things which were spoken of so many hundred years before and now they're finding their perfect fulfillment uh, in the life of Jesus, it's extremely compelling. There was a book by Michael Green called Who Is This Jesus? And if I remember correctly, he goes through very carefully the fulfillment of prophecies. And so I commend that to you. If this is something that might encourage your faith, look up that. Uh, now it's an older book by Michael Green, Who Is This Jesus? And a short book and just a wonderful book uh, that really is compelling and powerful uh, in that. Um, and this is not the main point, but it really provides sort of the context for me, at least this morning, it provides the context for the second observation, which is that in Psalm 22, is predicted a hundred years, hundreds of years before what Jesus was doing there on the cross, that there would be those who missed it, who completely missed what Jesus was doing there on the cross. They're focused inward, they're focused on themselves, and they're casting lots for his clothing. Soldiers could care less about Jesus. They just wanted what was theirs, right? They just wanted what was theirs. They live in, they live in a kind of a dog-eat-dog world where the name of the game is, is uh, get whatever you can, right? Get for yourself. And, you know, part of me is ready to judge them, right? How could you, you soldiers, you're right, you're, you had the privilege of, sitting at the foot of the cross while it's all actually happening and you completely missed it, right? There's part of us that wants to judge them for their actions and their behaviors and then we sit back and we reflect and we ask the question, well, how many times, you know, have I missed it? How many times how, has there ever been a moment when I treated Jesus merely as a means to getting what I want, rather than sitting open-handed before the cross and, and letting Jesus be to me who he's going to be without my control over the situation, without my desire for, for me to use Jesus for what will fulfill me first and foremost. Have I ever focused on what Jesus can do for me and, and missed the bigger picture, right? Have I ever been like those soldiers, like looking at the ground and casting lots while Jesus is doing something magnificent and wonderful and glorious behind me and I'm completely missing it? And the answer is yes. Over, maybe daily for me, I miss what Jesus is doing. And, and my concern is for myself that, that Jesus, would you just hear my prayer and do what I'm asking you to do? Right? So these soldiers stand in for 
not just for, for the fulfillment of this prophecy, but they stand in for us as well and the, and the kind of people that we can be. There's a soldier in every one of us. And generally, it's true that we live in a world that's cutthroat. And, and maybe you experience this in your work environment, or, or maybe there's a specific person in your work environment who is particularly cutthroat, and it just feels like they're always trying to step on somebody else to get ahead, to get what's mine. For them, the world is this kind of dog-eat-dog place where uh, you just have to get what belongs to you. Or maybe you discover sometimes that you have a streak of that in yourself, right? And the way that you are treating the people around you doesn't align with the kind of generous person that you would hope you would be. Or maybe you see this dynamic playing itself out uh, in the, the, the greed that's sort of uh, woven into the fabric of our culture, uh, our modern culture, which is, expresses itself in some unique ways. I was reading a, a book yesterday um, on addiction, and this, this book is, is kind of rocking me a little bit, and this term comes from David Courtright, um, is called limbic capitalism. I never heard of this before, um, limbic capitalism. And what limbic capitalism, it's when people design products uh, and market them with the express purpose of generating excessive consumption. With the express purpose of generating excessive consumption. So for example, Instagram has no bottom. You can scroll forever. Right? So that'd be one example. There are many, many kinds of examples. And, and, there, and this is the sad thing. Um, when you think about the kind of world that we live in, you know, as, as you, and I think about this with our children, as they're scrolling through Every time their finger goes down, somebody is making another dollar, right? It's like, to me, and this may be a little over the top, but it's a little bit like, you know, we, 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 we used to say, oh, how could we send kids into the mines, you know, in the 1800s or whenever that was, 1700s, to do the work there, you know, aren't we exploiting them? And here we have kids who are just day in and day out, just scrolling across, and because of limbic capitalism, they have, it has all been designed, and the algorithms are meant to draw them in and trap them into it, and they can't get away, and maybe you feel this way sometimes too, and they're just scrolling, and every time they do, somebody's making a dollar. Somebody's making a dollar, right? So this, this is the kind of world that we often live in, that we experience, and uh, that, that breaks our hearts when we see what's happening. Uh, maybe you come from a family that had some cutthroat tendencies. Maybe, um, and this is a hard one, maybe even it's in the church context that itself that you have experienced um, this kind of pain. We know the church is filled with broken people and sinful people. And sadly, we sin against each other. All right, so that's the picture, right? The soldiers there, uh, that's a little emblem for the kind of world that we live in and, you know, what often is happening around us. And when you sit with it, when you observe it, um, when you observe it in yourself, it can get you down. And that's why then scene number two becomes so beautiful and so powerful and so potentially transformative as we look to Jesus who is going to show us a different way to live. So let's 
Look at that now. You know, with all that ruthlessness sort of fresh, and we could talk all day about, you know, the kind of ruthless world that we live in. With all that fresh in our minds, you know, the nature of the world, we look at scene two here in this passage. And one of the things that stands out to me as we've been going through this, I, I, I sort of marvel at this, um, is that Jesus, as he's on the cross, it just sort of boggles my mind that he, as he's suffering, you know, the worst thing that every, anybody has ever suffered in the history of the world. Because it's not only the physical pain that he's experiencing there as he's on the cross. He's taking into himself all the consequence of sin for all the history of the world. And that's something that none of us could even begin to imagine the depth of intensity and suffering that that would bring. So it's not just the physical side. It's also the, the spiritual element. And more than the physical, it's the spiritual element of what he's doing. You know, every murder that's ever, ever taken place, you know, all, all of the, just go down the line, all the Ten Commandments, the way they broke, Jesus taking that all into himself as he's hanging there on the cross. And nevertheless, as he suffers, he continues to think about others. That's the example that Christ is giving for us. And it's such a powerful example, which becomes then the, the core of beautiful community, the kind of community that Christ wants to create. So apart from the inherent selflessness of his choice to go to the cross, you know, we looked at Luke 23, 34, where he prays this remarkable prayer. As he's on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Really? In that moment, of your greatest suffering and pain, you're concerned about loving the people that have actually done this to you. That is remarkable. And here, we have the same thing unfolding. Jesus, as he's on the cross, he's gonna look to his mother there, and he's gonna do something incredibly beautiful to take care of her and to provide for her. So John 19, 25, again, just so it's really fresh in our memory. So, so the, the, the previous verse says, so the soldiers did these things. And I think John, uh, the author of this gospel, is really intending for us to see the contrast between these two scenes. Because um, in the beginning of verse 25, it says, but, and a lot of times, but in in the Bible can really signal for you to kind of wake up like, okay, we've got a major contrast going on. That's what we have here. We have the soldiers and their ruthlessness and the way that the, the kind of community that they represent, which is so prevalent in our world today. And then we've got, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Probably there's four women, women, women intended there, okay? His mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, uh, that would be the writer of this gospel, John. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is maybe one of my favorite nicknames in the entire history of the world. Because he's not saying, oh, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. He has been brought to the place 
where he actually accepts the most powerful transformative truth that you could possibly know about yourself. And that is that God loves you. And it has been manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. And there's John. Yeah, I'm I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you can be too. That's a side note. Okay. Um, So there's John. Where am I? Um, Okay. And and then, uh, okay. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And these are terms, there's a little bit of a reminiscence of the adoption terms in the way that this is said, this behold framework, okay? Woman, behold your son, and then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Jesus does a beautiful thing here that transforms our conception of what community is really supposed to be and what God intends for us as a people. While he hangs in excruciating pain, literally the definition of excruciating, that's where that word comes from, cross, excruciating pain, okay? He looks to his mother and says, uh, in, in, in this sort of adoption language, woman, behold your son. And then he turns to John, the beloved disciple, and he says to him, behold your mother. And then from that day forward, we know that Jesus' mother stays with John. You ask, well, why did Jesus' mother go and stay with John? Because didn't Jesus have some other brothers, right? Chapter 7 in the Gospel of John, we learn about Jesus' brothers, right? So wouldn't the, I mean, definitely in a culture like that, wouldn't the natural thing be for the blood brothers to take care of their mother. And I don't know what the answer is, but scholars suspect that what's going on here is that, because we know from John chapter 7, that his brothers were not believing in him. And so Jesus chooses to align his mother with John because John is one of his followers one of his believers. And what we see emerging in this moment is that Jesus is creating a new community, a beautiful community that is a new family. And it is rooted and built on the cross and the work of Jesus on the cross. And the definition of love that Jesus has Spoken by his very actions on the cross. That's what's happening. You see it beginning to emerge. The community of believers that will become the church. And the call upon the people of the church is to care for one another. There on that cross in the dying moments, Jesus is starting a new family, which is the church. And the goal of the church is to multiply the love of Christ for his disciples and within itself. Now this is the love, let's, let's even take this out a little bit. This is the love that's there in the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And because of the work that Jesus has done on the cross, he's made a way for sinful human beings to be invited into that perfect 
triune love. Not because God needed it, because he wanted, he chose to invite us into the love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is completely perfect. And, and so that's the background of what's happening here. So that's the, the cosmic, heavenly conception of what's happening that's breaking through into the world in that moment through the person of Jesus Christ. And it just can't help but seep out. And as Jesus is there hanging on the cross, it's seeping out in the relationship with Jesus' mother and with his disciple. And it reminds me, I mean, this part sort of reflects the fact that, that uh, Jesus' brothers aren't the ones who are going to end up caring for his mother. But this disciple, who is his brother in Christ, is going to care for them. Mark 10, 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. So you see, on the horizontal level, so with the opening of a vertical relationship with God, he's creating on the horizontal level a new family, a beautiful new family, of com- a community that is walking together in life and serving each other in the way that a family does as mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and all the other ways and children and all the other ways that we relate to each other. And 1 John uh, 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. So there you have the connection between what Jesus is doing on the cross and then what he will call us to do in our lives with one another. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother, now it gets, John gets very tangible here, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, uh, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So, so this love is a very tangible love, and that's what you see on the cross there as Jesus is looking at his mother. I mean, he's making provision for the tangible needs of his mother. So this is the picture. This is what God's doing through Christ. He's he's forming a new community that essentially becomes a countersign to what we see in the world around us so much of the time, which is a, a community of ruthlessness, right, a kind of dog-eat-dog world where people are out for number one. And Jesus is establishing a powerful, powerful countersign to that kind of community. And what's crazy about it is, is you know, because of who we are as sinful people, we could, never, we could never bring that about without his help. There's just absolutely no way. And one of the blessings of Jesus going to the cross is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit means that we have the possibility of living into this beautiful, wonderful, amazing call to be a new community because no longer is it contingent upon our own skills and abilities and will and desire to make it happen. 
But God is now working in us, filling us, empowering us with his Holy Spirit. And in those moments when you feel like the call is too high, I cannot achieve what God's calling me to do, those are the moments when in dependency upon God, we stop and we wait and we cry out and say, God, give me the love for this person that I don't currently have. And the infilling of the Holy Spirit is about drawing on the endless well of the love of Christ to fill us in moments of need, to empower us more and more to become the kind of people who love in the way that God loves. And when we do that, we become a countersign to what's happening all around us in the world. This is what Jesus is doing. And I'm going to add a scene three here. Um, What does it look like when we live into our calling? And I just want to say at the outset that what we're describing here, I see all the time in this community in myriad ways, beautiful ways, wonderful ways. I hear stories about what goes on in people's home groups and the way that they love one another, and what goes on in Emmaus partnerships, and and when somebody has a need, and everybody in the home group chips in to deal with that need, and I just see it over and over and over again. So, So as I push us on to more, I also want to celebrate what God is doing and has done in us, right? So let's celebrate what Jesus has already done, and let's look for more. Let's pursue more. All right, and I've got some suggestions here for us. And um, I would say they're a little bit random uh, because if I were to go through an entire taxonomy of what makes for good community, um, we would be here for a long time. I would need multiple sermons in series because this is such a massive topic in Scripture. So what I decided to do was just sort of sit back pastorally and say, what are some things that that right now seem to apply to us as a community that would help us live into what Jesus has called us to, uh, this beautiful picture. And so let me just make some observations. And I want you to think about this with respect to the larger community of the church and then also think about it with respect to your individual relationships and in particular how this unfolds in your home group setting because that's where a lot of the magic happens. That's where... Um, you know, you're close enough to people where you can actually do life together. And these things can be lived out. And so, um, some basic things. It works, this kind of community works when people stay connected to Jesus. It happens, this kind of community is great when, when people stay connected to Jesus. What I mean by that is, I notice this in my own life, the best thing I can do for the people around me to love them well is to stay connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. To abide in the vine, right? When I do that, things happen that I'm not, I can't control all of my meanness, right? I don't mean meanness, I mean just who I am. Like I can't, but what I can do is I can draw close to Jesus and then he does stuff and he fills me with his spirit and then without me even knowing it, it spills out onto other people. The best thing I can do to love the people around me well is stay connected to Jesus, so don't skip those devotional times. Don't stop praying. Don't stop reading your Bible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Stay connected to Jesus for the sake of your brothers and sisters. Number two, it works when people are humble 
and assertive at the same time. I, I wrestled with, with that word assertive. Um, I, meant, I said bold at first, but I think assertive is what I really want. This is kind of the secret sauce. I think we tend to fall off on one side or the other. We emphasize humility, and then we just sort of recede into the background. We say, well, I'm humble. I can't do anything. I'm just going to be a, I'm just going to be a participant. I'm just going to be a, a, a consumer, or I'm just going to be a, a passenger in this whole church thing, because that's my humble posture. And then maybe others would lean on the other side, being too assertive and trying to drive. You know, we somehow, the secret sauce is when we embrace both of those. Humility and what I could maybe say a holy assertiveness. That we step up and bring what God has given us to the table. To be part, every person has a gift from God. And when you don't bring that to the table, we're missing out. All of us. So be humble and be assertive. It works when we acknowledge that some people are more mature and some less mature. Again, this is me just sort of speaking into some, some observations about how community works and how we might be able to grow into it a little more fully. Uh, when, when we acknowledge that some people are more mature and some less mature and we organize ourselves accordingly, I think there is, there is a, a social uh, composition of our society has become that, you know, it's totally flat. Nobody's ever further along than anybody else in anything. Like, it's not really even acceptable to acknowledge that. The problem with that is it's just not reality. Because sometimes people are more mature in the Lord than other people. And that's okay. And we try to make everything flat. We don't acknowledge that, you know, some are, are further along and that than me, and I need to hang out with them, and maybe I'm further along than somebody else, we undermine a really important element that's there in the scripture, which is that in the life of discipleship, we should have one hand forward and one hand back all the time. That we're, we're looking to somebody who's further along, and we're bringing somebody who isn't as far along the whole way. I've got people who are further along in my life, and I need, I, this week, uh, something happened, I was like, whoo, my head's spinning, I got on the phone, Text said, hey, can I call you real quick to somebody who's this person in my life? We spent 10 minutes on the phone praying. He gave me some great advice, right? We all need this. It's part of what it means to grow as a disciple. One hand forward, one hand back. And so that just comes with a, a, an acknowledgement that there are, there's maturity. That's a thing that happens within a community. All right. Um, it works when we are honest and transparent with one another. Uh, sometimes I've, I've had this a number of times where people have said, why is it, people who are in recovery will say, why is it that when I go to AA, the community there is so much richer and deeper than the community I experience at church? I've heard this many, many times from people. And I think the reason is because the people in AA, to be able to get there, they've come to a, a place of transparency and a place of acknowledgement of their own struggle and need. And they're very open about it. And that's what makes community kind of, that's, the, that's kind of the, another secret sauce to having good community. When people are open and transparent about their need. You, at any moment, we should be aware of many, 20, 50 ways that we desperately need Jesus. And when we bring that to community, it, it just opens, it cracks open relationships. 
And we have to be careful. Somebody, when somebody's being transparent, we don't have to always try to solve it for them in that moment. Sometimes the gift of transparency is just to open up community so that we can have a deeper conversation and people can really grapple with the things they need to grapple with. Um, so transparency, it works when we are honest and transparent with one another. Um, this is just a really random one, but it comes out of our sexual ethics um, series in the last while. Community is great when single people have refrigerator rights in the homes of married people and families. In other words, what I mean by that is that when the single people in our community are being woven into the families and married people's lives so that when they, when they go to their house, they are so comfortable, they feel like they can just open the fridge and eat something. They don't have to ask, right? It's a sign of the kind of connection and unity that has been fashioned there. And then lastly, uh, it works great when we focus on what we can give to others rather than what we can get. Um, a lot of times when we talk about community, there's an emphasis on what can we, what, what am I not getting? And I just, over and over again, I find that that's just a recipe for like not improving the situation. And when everybody starts asking, what can I give? It, it gets radically different. And that's really what the scripture teaches us. What can I give? Now, the needs that you have, they matter and they will be addressed in God's timing, God's way, when you focus more on what you can give. Now, there are moments when you need to call it out, say, this is what I'm needing, and this is what my struggle is. But really, the lion's share, it's like Jesus on the cross. He's our model. He's there suffering for sin for everybody, and he's caring, he's giving to others. Every person you come across is a Mary at the foot of the cross who needs community. Every person you come across is a Mary at the foot of the cross who needs needs to be taken care of, made for family. The Trinity is that perfect family, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then we as the church, as the Lord works in us, begin to reflect that community to one another and to the world, which oftentimes has a different view of what relationship is about. And then people get excited. They're like, oh, I need that. I was built for that. How do I get into being a part of that? So um, every day we have a choice. I think of the soldiers, the two scenes. There's the soldiers. They're looking down at, and they're, they're casting lots, which is a way of sort of gambling, throwing dice kind of idea. Casting lots for the clothing of Jesus. Jesus looming above them in a beautiful way and they're missing it completely. And we have a choice you know, every, in every relationship that we, every person that we encounter, will we approach that relationship like the soldiers? Or will we look up to Jesus like Mary and the beloved disciple as Jesus, and we take our cues from Jesus as he fashions us into a family of brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers who do life together. Those are the two options that we have in this moment while Jesus is on the cross. And, and God's calling us to look up and to allow Jesus to say, behold, there's your brother. Behold, here's your sister. Behold, here's your mother. Behold, here's your father, right? 
And out of that comes a beautiful community that becomes a countersign to the world. So Lord, would you help us to look up? Would you help us to look up and to see what you have called us into in all of its beauty and glory and wonder and goodness and the way that it stands as a countersign to a world where so many are feeling isolated and broken in aloneness. Lord, would you uh, help us to continue to live out your calling as a beautiful community? Would you be glorified by our efforts? Would you, by your spirit, empower our efforts to love you and to love each other well as family? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.